this lecture is dedicated to the memory of Julian Kareem. I begin with a story in the late 1990s when I was a postgraduate. I stumbled upon the topic of race. I was researching early modern cosmetic practices, the as yet unformed beauty industry, and the standards that women had to rise up to, and how all of this was mediated through Shakespeare and the work of his contemporaries. My thesis, and later my first book, explored how Shakespearean and early modern drama registered the politics and materiality of cosmetics and the debate surrounding beauty. But I came across the work of Kim F. Hall, whose book, Things of Darkness, Economies of Race and Gender in Early Modern England, had only come out two years prior to my embarking on my PhD, 1995. I was very excited about this work because Hall was arguing that whiteness was a racial category too. I thought, how stunningly groundbreaking for Shakespeare studies. Critical whiteness studies, which is the study of the structures that produce white privilege, had been around for a very long time, but I had not encountered it in my discipline. Hall showed how race and gender were inextricably linked in the period's literature about beauty and in the poetry of mistress worship, uh, like those written by uh, English poets Edmund Spencer and Sir Philip Sidney, and this type of poetry idolized women into unattainable, glistening, chaste towers of ivory. Hall identified a distinct language of race, which created a racial dynamics borne out in what Margot Hendricks referred to in a 2000 uh, essay as an epistemology of race in the pre-modern era. So I began, as this postgraduate, conceptualizing a chapter that was to be focused on ideas of racial formation, but tied more closely to the role of beauty and cosmetics that Elizabeth I seemed to have epitomized in her portraits. So I wanted to know how politics, white face, and poetic and dramatic inclusion of such ideas played into what I thought then were early modern concepts of difference. But I was told by my first supervisor, I eventually switched, that this was a dead end. Race is anachronistic. There's no merit in such discussions. That race did not exist until the 18th century. And my thesis would fail on that basis was the gist of the commentary. I felt shot down, obviously, felt shut down. I did not think for a moment to challenge him. I was very green, insecure, uh, happy mainly just to be admitted into a program at the University of London College. But my gut instinct told me that this material I was reading, combined with <coughs> secondary texts, the criticism that was being written about them, that I, had re that I had researched, all pointed towards race. And even in the late 90s, it wasn't a new topic. Hendricks has talked about the critical lineage of this work. Back in 2000, she said, we are only the inheritors of an intellectual, critical, and political tradition. I mean, that was 21 years ago. Furthermore, Hendricks suggests that the volume her essay was included in at the turn of the 21st century, which is a volume called Shakespeare and Race, edited by Catherine Alexander and Stanley Wells. She said, the continuing importance of the intellectual labors of a generation of scholars increasingly ignored or dismissed in the rush to racialize Shakespeare's canon and or Elizabethan England, and also reminds us of the work yet to be done. So we are now in the era of yet to be done. Ignored and dismissed, these two responses to the topic of race in Shakespeare are still very common. According to some scholars, to some directors, to many writers in online magazines, apparently aligning race and Shakespeare is too simple-minded. And those of us who do so aren't necessarily clever enough to understand Shakespeare's true genius. If I had the confidence back then that I have now, <laughs> I'm not going to 
follow through with that thought, I'm sure I would have been able to respond by writing the thesis I wanted to write. There were no scholars of color teaching Shakespeare in my department to back me up, though, and this is still largely the state of play in the United Kingdom. Representation matters. Only 1% of professors in, the U in UK universities are black. The statistic is worse than that for Shakespeare studies. One reason there is very little racially diverse representation in this field specifically is because of the active discouragement of any kind of inquiry that considers race and identity as a viable topic for scholarly pursuit. My friend and colleague Vanessa Corradera puts it succinctly when she says, if early modern studies ignores the presence of race in Renaissance literature, we may also be inadvertently entrenching white privilege by deterring scholars of color and scholars invested in race and social justice from work in our field. Not all scholars of color will want to pursue race, of course, but when there is very little, if no representation amongst the faculty, Shakespeare's studies generally feels unwelcoming. So my advice to postgraduates is to follow the research as well as your instincts for knowledge, particularly when you know that the road you're mapping is rigorous and leads to historical truth. Trawl the parts of the archives that have been left in the dark and locate possibility where you're told it does not reside. What manifested for me is what had manifested for so many other scholars of color, academic gatekeeping. So what do we do about the gatekeeping principles that still dominate academia and that inform the kinds of research that students should and shouldn't do? Even if race is an anachronistic idea, it's not. But if it was, my response would still be to pursue it in a way that chimes with what Kim Hall calls to be strategically anachronistic. But the debates around Shakespeare and race, or the woke culture war, leads me to two much bigger questions. The first is, who does Shakespeare belong to? The second, who decides what is a legitimate approach to Shakespeare in both the classroom and the rehearsal room? As a scholar embedded in Shakespeare studies and performance at one of the world's most iconic Shakespeare theaters, these questions are urgently on my mind. The question of legitimacy is of particular concern at the moment. Interpreting Shakespeare through the lens of race, social justice, mental health, gender fluidity, sexuality, or even just casting diversely doesn't seem to go down well with those who think that such productions are trying to be woke. Take a February 2020 Telegraph editorial. Problematic Shakespeare is in danger of being canceled, in which the author talks about diversity in casting as somehow only a response to, quote unquote, a woke drum, rather than opening Shakespeare up more broadly. Greg Doran of the Royal Shakespeare Company took the writer to task uh, for the misogynistic, ableist, and racist assumptions in that piece, so I don't need to, but I will digress for a moment to take some issue with the way the word woke has been appropriated and weaponized in recent public discourse. So what is woke? In the culture wars, woke has come to refer to over-political correctness. In the context of Shakespeare in performance, it is used largely by white theater critics or conservative publications. But the use of this word in this way is an act of appropriation and one that is dangerous because through its corruption of meaning and its repetition, it creates widespread fear, aggression, and can even lead to legislation. Also, the way it is used now is an expression of anti-black racism on one level because of the word's origins in the 20th century. In 1938, the African-American blues singer Huddy Ledbetter, better known as Lead Belly, in his song, Scottsboro Boys, about a group of nine black teenagers who were accused of raping two white women. After he finishes the song, he is heard saying, 
So I advise everybody, be a little careful when you go along through there. Best to stay woke. Keep their eyes open. Meaning African Americans needed to be alert to the real bodily threat of white supremacy. We see the term emerge again in 2014 with Black Lives Matter and the campaign to end police brutality. But then, if you follow the term, it is invoked by white liberals. It becomes global, and soon it becomes trendy. Instagram cool to be woke. Despite the good intentions behind the use of that word, this unfortunately weakened the word's power and its message, making it vulnerable to the weaponization that we see now. When theater productions attempt to be accessible, to speak to social injustice, a pundit or critic can call it woke. And that begins to delegitimize not only the production, but also the very idea of accessibility and the very idea of social justice. It's insidious. This was illustrated to me in a letter I received from an angry member of the public who said that I was trying to force, quote, all and sundry to like Shakespeare when I should leave well enough alone. Not everyone needs to read him. Because it was assumed I had, I had to do something to Shakespeare in order to make Shakespeare accessible, to interfere with his work, as, as this letter put it. Making Shakespeare accessible was seen as an act of destruction, simply a response to the woke drum. Shakespeare's globe was pulled into the culture war more deeply when we launched a series of anti-racist webinars in May of 2021. Part of the work of the academic wing of the globe, this series was called a sideshow by theater critics who didn't attend any, of course. They were deemed simplistic in their suggestion in one of them, for example, that Shakespeare's works are complicated by, for example, a language of race. Articles defending Shakespeare argued that just because the word fair or the word dark is used in the imagery, it is not a case for race. Surely this reveals a lack of appreciation for the way language operates in and through the creation of culture. Such a view disregards the multidisciplinary training and expertise of the scholars who speak in those webinars, as well as the views informed by the experience of being a black artist in a white-dominated Shakespeare performance industry. In a call to arms to the publishing profession in academia, the authors Kim Coles, Kim Hall, and Ayanna Thompson explain vividly just how tightly language and colonialism are interwoven in the literary and dramatic works that emerge from this period in history. They said the colonial project is stitched in and through the language and literatures of the pre and early modern periods. The politics and economics that ultimately produced settler colonialism, chattel slavery, the forced migration of peoples and the development of the British empire animate these early texts. Contending with what that means for Shakespeare in the classroom and on stage is vital in a world in which racial division is still a felt experience for people of the global majority. Shakespeare is not supposed to be fossilized, nor are we ever meant to feel comfortable all the time watching a Shakespeare play. Revolution and progressive politics inform these plays, the and the different critical and theatrical interpretations over the last 400 years have made that point time and again and as has popular culture. We've witnessed psychoanalytical debates, Marxist critiques, new historicism, uh, deconstructionism, post-structuralism, semiotics, performance analysis, feminist approaches, queer Shakespeare, post-colonialism, film studies, intercultural and translation studies, and there are now academic conferences and publications that analyze mashups of Shakespeare and Star Wars. I just wanted to put these pictures up. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's talk about interfering with Shakespeare. But it has been harder to get Shakespeare and race out of the gate, even though its critical heritage dates back decades. 
What scholars like Hall, Hendricks, and I uh, have, uh, and many others have encountered in the white-dominated field of Shakespeare studies, I have also encountered through my Shakespeare and race initiatives in this country. I introduced the topic at Shakespeare's Globe in 2018. As an organization, the Globe had been examining Shakespeare through multiple lenses for many years, uh, with its Globe-to-Globe projects, its history of diversity in casting, uh, and its education seasons devoted to a range of topics, such as Shakespeare and Islam, which was going on when I first arrived in 2004, Shakespeare and censorship, Shakespeare and anti-Semitism. So it didn't feel weird to suggest to my then bosses that we host scholars and artists of color in a week-long festival to give a platform to the topic of Shakespeare and race. After the pandemic and the horrific murder of George Floyd, what we had already started seemed even more vital to the moment, to the work of our artists, students, and early career scholars. But it has risks because it is assumed that to approach Shakespeare in a non-traditional way means endangering the bard or canceling Shakespeare. Are we canceling Shakespeare when we talk about race? The answer is obviously no, because if I did do that personally, I'd be in trouble. The bard pays my bills and I'm a little too old to retrain. More to the point, I just spent the last 15 months of the pandemic standing with the CEO, the artistic director, my co-director of education, and other colleagues as we tried to desperately hold up the globe to keep Shakespeare in the cultural imaginary. We worked relentlessly through lockdown to keep Shakespeare going. We were all exhausted, but the globe still stands, and that makes me proud. So I hope to put an end to the suggestion that Shakespeare's Globe would play any part in canceling the very thing its managers fought blood, sweat, and tears to save. So I wanted to begin this lecture by showing that if you want to talk about race, it's sometimes going to be a fight. We should ponder why that is if we are not still mired in racist systems of thought. Systems that enable people to write letters to us saying that Shakespeare has nothing to do with the colonial and that the British Empire was good for those subjected to British rule. As a descendant of those subjected to British rule, for the rest of this talk, I will explore Shakespeare, race, and performance in three sections. First, I'll pose, what do we mean by race? Just to clarify um, what that means. Then ask, do Shakespeare's plays speak of race at all? And finally, I want to share some thoughts on race and Shakespeare in the context of performance back then and a little bit now looking towards the future of the theater industry. So what is race? In the introduction to the Cambridge Companion to Shakespeare and Race, Ayanna Thompson tackles this question by sharing an experience which is very similar to the experience I shared with you as I opened this talk. Someone told her that the concept of race did not exist in Shakespeare's time. The argument was, and still is for many, that to look at race in early modern texts is to misapply modern concepts to them. This is known as the anachronism question. While the word race existed, it did not mean then what it means today. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us that race referred historically to lineage, to breeding or common ancestry, and that this could apply to humans as well as horses. It was not until the 18th and 19th centuries when European anthropologists classified human difference according to various factors, like skull shape, skin color, and phenotype. This biology of race embedded the term and concept into the cultural imagination throughout Western Europe and the United States as a fact. And the biology of difference soon became the politics of difference as it was used to justify the European British slave trade and the American slave society. But modern science has proved that race is not biological. There is nothing genetic within us that creates our race. Race is a myth. It isn't real. So there is no race. So my lecture should be over, but not quite. The idea of race making is real. And this is defined as the creation of race as a social entity, a category we use to assign difference, value, and laws. 
As Geraldine Heng, the author of The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages, observes, race is a structural relationship for the articulation and management of human differences rather than a substantive content. This creation of race, is this is what I'm interested in and how we can use Shakespeare's texts and his world to examine how it happens and how it continues to be part of our world, to be part of our experiences. Contemporary theorists can also help us to come to grips with, this, with the definition of race. For example, one I always share with my students, Leanne Bell says, race is not a biological category, but it's an idea, a social construction created to interpret human difference and to justify socioeconomic arrangements in ways that accrue to the benefit of a dominant group. So we, we can't really talk about race as an idea or concept without sliding into a conversation about racism, for which I turn to Leanne Bell again, who calls it a system of advantage. And I'm going to come back to definitions of racism and race just to kind of um, uh, embed that a little bit. Uh, a system of, of advantage based on race and supported by institutional structures, policies, and practices. So this kind of begs the question when we start thinking about Shakespeare, is racism limited to the extreme rhetoric, for example, that we hear from Iago uh, in Shakespeare's most obvious race play, Othello? Iago uses terms to identify Othello that denigrate and dehumanize him because of his difference. And these terms are designed to objectify his blackness against the backdrop of white Venice. We hear phrases like black ram, barbary horse, the devil, lascivious, more beast, changeable, erring, barbarian. Then he says, I hate them more, lusty more, et cetera, et cetera. If you kind of go through it, it becomes very, very upsetting, actually. This is extreme individual racism or what social behaviorist Camara Phyllis-Jones calls personally mediated ra racism. And she defines that here. Prejudice and discrimination are kind of the key thing. This is what people tend to think of when they hear the word racism. It can be intentional and unintentional. It can also be performative, as it is with Iago. Some might argue we don't even know if he himself is really a racist in the personally mediated way, in the extreme way. When black actresses are cast as Amelia, his wife, it invites this speculation. We know he performs racism, but does he do it only because he wants to make Othello feel his difference and to see how Venice excludes him even as it offers to reward him? I'm not saying Iago was not a racist, by the way. It's just a, a question. But Camara Phyllis-Jones identifies two other types of racism, or levels of racism, as she calls them, that could be relevant for Shakespeare's play. If we're going to do a reading of Othello, we might think about how does institutionalized racism um, manifest itself. She talks about, in, uh, in society, institutional racism manifesting itself in material conditions and in barriers to access to power. And then she talks about another kind of racism, internalized racism, which is the acceptance by members of a stigmatized race of negative messages about their own abilities and intrinsic worth. And this is something that can happen if you grow up in spaces where there aren't a lot of people like you around. Othello's final speech and his act of suicide resonate so profoundly and devastatingly with this kind of inter internalization of his society's condemnations that are subtle and some of them extreme as we see with Iago. We can't really fully understand racism without talking about all three levels um, and, and taking them into consideration, which suggests to me that if we're talking about Othello and we're locating racism only in Iago and therefore to the fringes of the play, that might be distracting to a certain extent from what's going on with race. Visible racists like Iago or like the white supremacists, neo-Nazis, who stormed the U.S. Capitol on the 6th of January represent deeper issues. They are a symptom 
a boil on a somewhat diseased state. And it is dangerous to isolate such figures as the only locus of racism. Likewise, focusing only on, a, on Iago allows us to keep thinking the question of race in Shakespeare is not substantive, that it is isolated and therefore easy to dismiss, and worse, it might prevent people from seeing the structures of racism that are more hidden and still very much with us. So when I have these conversations or I give talks about this uh, or I write blogs about it, here's a question I get often. Was Shakespeare racist? I know that critics of Shakespeare and race think that's what we are arguing, that we are saying his personal attitudes were deplorable and that means he should come off the curriculum, his statue should be pulled down and the globe should close his doors. We hate him. That's not true, we don't hate him. The truth is, I don't really know if Shakespeare himself was racist by our standards of the term. Most public intellectual Shakespeare scholars like to tell you exactly what Shakespeare thought, as if he whispered in their ears like prophets of the bard, what he felt, his ideas of love, of hate, of death, of marriage. But I'm here to tell you an industry secret. None of us really know we have our beliefs, though, what we infer from years of being immersed in his words. I like to believe, for example, that he was the proto-feminist, racial activist, and social justice warrior that I think at times emerges from his plays. But others don't always see that. When his work was instituted into the German curriculum during the Third Reich, I'm fairly sure that is not what the Nazis saw. The comedian John Stewart's take on The Merchant of Venice led him to shout in 2014, F.U. Shakespeare. And many black actors refuse to step into the role of Othello because it feels like a trap, a fantasy portrayal that confirms age-old stereotypes about black men with each performance. Whereas others see the role as transcending such stereotypes. So no one is able to say with any certainty, whether Shakespeare was racist or not. But to my mind, it isn't really the point of his work, and I'm not sure that it entirely matters. It's the plays that are here, the plays themselves for us to contend with, on the page and on the stage. This is where we can see race, where we can talk about race, and where through language, trope, ideas of difference and exclusion, through his account of the felt experience of what can occur when racially marked characters come into contact with white worlds. We see this in the very obvious race plays like Titus Andronicus, Othello, The Merchant of Venice, The Tempest, and Antony and Cleopatra. But interestingly, we also see it in the history plays in attitudes expressed towards the Irish and the Welsh who were deeply racialized in the period, described using a lot of the same language as savage, barbaric, and seen as less than human. They were dissociated from whiteness by even the most revered English poets. We see it in the language of Shakespeare's comedies, in the objectification of whiteness in the romances or tragicomedies, and in the equation of blackness with criminality and evil, as well as the celebration of white history and identity in the tragedies, but I'm not suggesting I know where Shakespeare sat on all of those questions. Talking about race in Shakespeare means seeing it as a process of formation, of making. To get a fuller picture of this process of race making, we need to step back though, actually, and take a look at a longer, wider history of Western thought. Uh, when I talk about this with um, my graduate students, they get worried that I'm going to expect them to become medievalists and classicists as well. As Geraldine Heng's book suggests, we need to go back to the Middle Ages and even to the Classical Age to see how templates or frameworks for thinking about how you organize society according to difference are readily available by the time Elizabeth I is on the throne. What transpires is that there are two seemingly incompatible methods for exploring Shakespeare and race. 
right? So uh, the historical and the contemporary. But this kind of inquiry, if we're going to look at race really carefully, we have to think about both because we're still living in that space. There are questions that prompt the thinking historically that we need to do about the past and the present and how they're in dialogue with each other. So we might ask, what was Shakespeare's world like? What did they know? What didn't they know? How did they understand the, bo the body? So going back to thinking about systems of thought, systems of the body in Shakespeare's time is, is one way of, of being able to get to the bottom of this. What political discourses of the day were circulating? Who was on the throne? What, uh, how did they get there? What global encounters were taking place at the time? What books were published and who was reading them? What other plays were written? Who was in the audience? Who is in the audience is a really big question. Who made up that society? What frightened Elizabethans and Jacobeans? What thrilled them? What were English merchants, explorers, and privateers doing? But we also need to ask how our own moment can be brought to bear upon these plays. Our own lived experiences and contemporary ideas about race, identity, justice, war, climate, and how modern actors Modern actors bring this contemporary world to the Shakespearean stage in performance each time they stake their bodies and voices on Shakespeare's importance. Another important factor in understanding race in any time period means accepting that whiteness too is a racial category, that white people are raced in the same way as people of the global majority. Whiteness studies and white scholar Richard Dyer said back in 1997 that it is crucial to see whiteness. As long as whiteness is felt to be the human condition, then it alone both defines normality and fully inhabits it. The, equa the equation of being white with being human secures a position of power. And he goes on to talk about that and ends up by saying whiteness needs to be made strange. And that's okay. It isn't a devi divisive idea. It's not designed to divide, it's actually designed to unite, that everybody has a race. This idea lays bare the myth that white people are just people. So those deemed non-white are either other or nothing at all. The aim of critical whiteness studies, which started many, many years ago uh, in education and sociology, is to reposition whiteness to undermine its authority because it is a powerful position to be just human when everyone else is raced. These ideas are taking root in discussions in Shakespeare studies now. It's not, as I said, anti-white racism, but thinking about whiteness brings everyone into view and we can begin to make sense of difference and exclusion when we can all see each other. The early modernist Amberine Databoy questions how we explain the operations of race in Shakespearean texts that we have not identified as being explicitly about race. So this is you know, thinking about the other plays that we don't necessarily identify having anything to do with race. She's addressing the idea that some white critics are willing to concede that, yes, Shakespeare might have thought about race because of the so-called race plays like Othello and the others I mentioned earlier which consequently suggests, Databoy says, that race occupies an other space. It's over here, it's in a different locale, a different geography, and that the remainder of the Shakespearean corpus, the rest of his plays, are somehow immunized from such concerns. So then this enables a certain kind of privilege in the teaching and studying as well as performing of Shakespeare. In that, as she goes on, race and racism are the problems of those who occupy racialized identities and within this idea, white people have no experience of race in their own bodies. So they never have to necessarily think about it or talk about it, only it's an option to think about it and talk about it. So in defining race, we take into account not just bodies that have been traditionally seen as raced, but all bodies in the room. So finally, to examine race carefully means taking an approach that doesn't isolate race or other essential qualities or traits. So it's being intersectional, thinking about all the different elements of someone's identity, like gender or class or sexualities, because these sometimes multiple and converging identities make one multiply 
vulnerable to oppression. When she coined the term intersectionality to speak to this phenomenon, Kimberly Crenshaw may not have been aware of the social movement she was starting. In her articles that she published in 1989 and 1991, she generated intersectionality to avoid one category thinking. So it's a, a way of thinking about identity and society that provides a really useful path into Shakespeare. It enables us to teach him more inclusively and also to cast his plays when we're casting them with an ethics of care and consciousness. It could also lead to interesting interpretations of Elizabethan sonnets that privilege white beauty, but that align darker features with more aggressive sexual energy. It could mean examining a character like Desdemona in Othello through the lens of privileged whiteness, as well as through misogyny. It could mean exploring how the darker features of Cleopatra, her tawny front and amorous pinches black, as she puts it, are over-sexualized when they're pitted against Roman virtue. It could also mean seeing how the language of race and gender or misogyny in the play work together to reveal where inequalities are being constructed and where inclusion is only a performance. So now to the question of uh, do Shakespeare's plays speak of race? Well, obviously, I've been telling you they do, uh, and I've answered much of this already, but I just want to think about a play like The Merchant of Venice for a moment, which centralizes the dispute between a Venetian and a Jew living in Venice. The play offers us a, a glimpse at an early modern concern with racial, religious, and ethnic integration. It asks what happens when different cultures come together to work to exchange and to trade? How do their cultural and religious differences define their approach to their daily lives, to their work, or to their way of commerce? How do different ethnic and religious communities define justice? How do their privilege or lack thereof determine their behavior? It seems absurd to suggest that Shakespeare is not concerned with race when there's a play like this one in the canon. If you studied it, you'll know that Venice was a city that housed many strangers, as they referred to it back then. That there was a large population of Jews that lived in the Venetian ghetto and who could openly trade and conduct business in the city as well as freely practice their religion. There were Moors and Turks and other visitors and migrants who worked in the city as the many travel narratives and paintings of Venice attest to. The anti-Semitism in the portrayal of Shylock is difficult to deny. While the way the Prince of Morocco is presented and the racial preferences expressed by Portia demonstrate a fundamental conundrum of Renaissance global-facing cities. Their big problem was how do you become a center for trade, opulence, wealth, and power, but retain a pure religion and a pure identity? How do you hold on to white Christian purity in a multicultural capitalist society? And this is exactly what the Merchant of Venice is, is kind of uh, working through. It's productive to explore those questions because they're still part of the politics of race today. The first anti-racist webinar that we held at the Globe was on Midsummer Night's Dream, and it was um, uh, participated in by Vanessa Corridera, who I quoted earlier, and an actor named Aldo Bill Billingsley. They talked about all of this stuff, the politics of the play, but also they focused a lot on the language, and they talked about the evidence of these elements of Orientalism and colonialism in the inclusion of the story of an Indian boy as exotic property and the fairy's custody battle that unravels their own sense of colonial entitlement. This discussion that was had on this webinar was criticized on Twitter and in some of the press, but it was not the first place where these ideas were aired. There is a long genealogy of criticism that reads the play this expansively. Elsewhere, I've talked about the pitfalls of being a scholar of color from a non-white ethnicity, like Vanessa, Aldo, and myself. One of the sensitivities to these texts that we have are that we know racialized language when we see it, because often it can resemble language we've encountered in our daily lives. If not the words, then the sentiment. 
whether it's Iago's overtly racist language in Othello, or the seemingly misplaced racism of Lysander, hopefully everybody knows the dream, in, after he is bewitched by the flower, he tells Hermia, whom he once loved, but now who he's rejecting, away you Ethiop, out tawny tartar. This language makes me think of when I was told, and I'm going to say something a little offensive, uh, when I was told by a passerby outside Waterloo Station not too long ago to go home packy. He might as well have said to me, out tawny tartar. Some like to defend Shakespeare by saying such language is only imagery, sometimes even beautiful poetry, like when Lysander again repents the tedious minutes he has spent with Hermia and asks, who will not change a raven for a dove? It's just imagery. Hermia is not black, no, perhaps she isn't, but you don't need to have an African figure in the frame to find anti-black sentiment. Hermia's darker features make her less attractive because the whiteness of Helena represents the ideal of the day. And when examined alongside a network of texts and images from the period, a distinctive preference for whiteness emerges. And this is what I was finding in my early research on makeup and beauty in the period. Kim Hall explains how this polarity between dark and light uh, created by words in Renaissance text works and how it speaks to identity and self-fashioning, the idea of fashioning a self or an, uh, thinking about selfhood in this period. She talks about descriptions of dark and light rather than being mere indications of the beauty standards or markers of moral categories became a way of thinking about the self and asserting the self. How do we know that race is emerging in this period then? We examine not just the language, the representation of characters, but we also examine the historical context, emerging concepts of English ethnicity and nationhood, trade, mercantilism, indigenous encounters, European wealth from the slave trade, which started in the 15th century. And then remember that biophysical features or color binaries are only one way to talk about race in this period, but that in fact, race encompasses geography, ethnicity, Na uh, nation, religion, culture, as well as language. So I'm going to conclude by talking a bit more about performance now. As I've been arguing, the language of race in Shakespeare, uh, his use of racial tropes, or even what to white commentators feel like harmless words, fair and dark, are everywhere in the plays. But we need to note that while it is innocuous to white Christian readers, it is language that can be offensive and even harmful to students and actors from different religious and racial backgrounds. This is where Amberine Databoy's observation that we saw earlier about the Shakespeare Academy seems a fitting way to characterize also the theater industry. I'll remind you, she said, race and racism are the problems of those who occupy racialized identities. Within this context, white people have no experience of race in their own bodies. So they aren't necessarily able to recognize how a scene or a soliloquy is affecting one of their actors. I don't, also, I don't want to argue that all black and minority ethnic actors struggle with this language, nor do I suggest everyone wants to talk about their racial identity in the rehearsal room. We may hear the argument that in Shakespeare's time, the theaters were white spaces. So I'll explain what that means shortly, but this assumption is incorrect. Historically speaking, race was an indelible presence on the early modern stage. Shakespeare was not the only early modern dramatist concerned with racialized characters. That's the other thing we do is we read Shakespeare out of context of his contemporaries, the other guys who were writing for the theaters at the time. Um, plays about many themes emerged in this prolific era of theater making. Love, sex, oppression, conquest, death, marriage, justice. But selfhood and identity were the lifeblood of dramatic action. And not just English selfhood, though as I said, the history plays examine and challenge how English nationhood and identity unfold in this period. There were over 50 plays with characters that represented a range of identities and that had foreign settings staging all manner of global encounters. That means that by the time Shakespeare wrote Othello and staged it at the Globe in around 1604, 
black characters, Jews, and Turks had been on stage and seen on stage in quite a few of the theaters of the time. The costume and props inventories amongst the papers of the star actor of the uh, Rose Theater, Edward Elaine, tell us about various items that reveal the prosthetic nature of performing race on the early modern stage. So if you look at the, um, uh, the costume inventories and the prop inventories, it's only one list that exists from this time period, really, uh, about the commercial theaters. And it's so interesting to see how they talked about these objects. But there are references to Turks' heads. And we know that there were plays about Turks in this period, quite a few Turk plays. Uh, and these were, would have been sort of prepared waxen heads for the 16th century plays that featured decapitation, because there's a lot of that in these plays too. Uh, and then there's another um, uh, entry for Amor's limbs, which probably refer to the black fabric sleeves or socks that can be put onto the body to appear black. If race was such an intrinsic part of early modern theater practice, why are we so reluctant to acknowledge this and to discuss the formation of race through Shakespeare's plays? Equally, the contemporary Shakespearean stage is even more urgently an appropriate place to examine race. So how do we do this? There's lots of ways, but I'm just gonna give you a few thoughts. First, I think we have to reckon with the fact that theater is in the UK, in the US, not every theater in the world, uh, is a white space. White spaces are those with a dominant presence of white people, built and designed by and for white people. This is a sociological concept developed by Elijah Anderson. There's often a lack of consciousness about the whiteness of those spaces. What is perceived by white people to be diverse environments, many people of color may see as homogeneously white and privileged. And this creates a binary of perceptions, and that's kind of where some of the tension lies. It doesn't have to be that way. The Shakespearean theater is a white space. It should be a cosmopolitan space, and I think most theater venues think they are cosmopolitan spaces. So that's one concept. The other question in the theater industry that we might need to ask ourselves is how are we casting the plays? What is the audition process? Is it inclusive? Is it equitable? Is it free of bias and stereotype? Is it conducted through a prism of whiteness and its assumed invisibility? The report on a research project that had been conducted by Jamie Rogers through the Lenny Henry Center for Media Diversity reported that two-thirds of actors of color have experienced racist stereotyping in an audition, while more than 50% have experienced racism in the workplace. It further claimed that the audition process is, quote, one of the most pernicious sites of institutional racism in the industry. So this is a really important space for thinking about reckoning. The third question we ask is what values do theater venues, particularly Shakespearean theater spaces, what values do they hold? How is it staffed? After the murder of George Floyd, it didn't take long for theaters and cultural organizations in this country to post Black Lives Matter solidarity statements. Soon theaters were challenged to post their statistics with regard to racial diversity in their staff and their boardrooms, not just on stage. Some theater venues, the statistics were pretty bleak. From boards to executive management to production and backstage staff, the dominant racial statistic is white. And this was noticed in 2018 during the Shakespearean Race Festival at the Globe. An African-American scholar who was a delegate at the conference and had attended all the events, including the theater productions, was raving about the diversity of our casts, how thrilling it was to see. But he noted and warned that the leadership and the staff was mostly white. And he said, I'd call that plantation Shakespeare. That comment burned, but I have never forgotten it. And I will continue to cite it until it is no longer the case for any Shakespearean theater, not least the one where I hang my own hat every day. 
Equally important, and this is the fourth question, is the scaffolding around productions. This is where education departments are really golden. What is being said about them in program notes? How involved are actors, agents, and publicity posters and trailers? Who are the reviewers of productions, right? Who's reviewing them over and over and over again? What are they noticing? What papers are, and websites are these reviewers writing for? There's also a huge, I mean, there's like 1,700 other things that I could tell you that we should be doing. But these are the ones that I wanted to highlight most importantly. I think theater faces unprecedented challenges. Um, and I feel a lot of solidarity with the industry at the moment, given everything that we've been through. Um, particularly at the Globe, we almost, we, almost, we almost had to close our doors. But many venues are becoming increasingly aware, just as the Globe is, that crucial to the survival and enrichment of a Shakespeare performing venue is the integration of an informed knowledge of how race is part of the Shakespearean fabric then and now, and how anti-racist approaches to staging Shakespeare should be incorporated into every theater's recovery plan. Talking about race is uncomfortable, and that's okay, and requires informing ourselves about the past. It's okay to do this, Shakespeare will totally survive this. He'll be as robust, if not more, when we're all no longer here. Asking how Shakespeare's plays and his world mediated or shaped our own racial imagination is not endangering the bard. If anything, it shows us the immediacy, the urgency of his works to our lives, to our discourse, and to our art making, and it shores up his capacity to endure well into the future. Thank you.